Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, listeners, we're going back into the archives to dig up a fabulous old-time show, the first of many shows that I did with the legendary Dr. Phil Maffetone. And this is a lengthy two-part show, two episodes together, so we will rebroadcast both of those in order. And oh my gosh, it is so nice to see this guy getting his due finally after 30 years of hitting these themes that were so uh, crazy back in the day when he first came out with uh, the concept of telling endurance athletes to slow down, telling uh, peak performers that fitness and health were disparate concepts, and in fact, you could mess up your health by pursuing fitness goals. I mean, we have been uh, re-educated now, so that it's not such a novel concept, but uh, once upon a time, when you saw a six-pack, you equated that person with being the healthiest guy on the block, instead of perhaps the highest at-risk patient on the block because of the uh, destructive elements of chronic cardio. And I remember when Phil first came out and uh, gained some notoriety on the professional triathlon circuit because he was working privately with guys like Mike Pig, Mark Allen, and Tim DeBoom, who were the best in the world and kicking everybody's ass. So when you get your butt kicked enough on the race course, you tend to look around, see what the other athletes are doing. I remember going up to Mark Allen and basically accosting him after another one of his great races where I tried my hardest, I had trained very well, and I was just off the back from what the pace this guy was setting. And I said, dude, what's going on? How do you do this sport so well? What can I do better? I'm training as hard as I can. I sleep half of my life, as I've said said many times on this show. There was nothing else I could give, no more energy I could give devote to the sport, and no more that I could do with my own lifestyle. And he said, look, man, you got to slow down. That is the path to continued improvement. We have to stop beating our bodies up and going into this injury, illness, burnout pattern and escaping from it and pounding some more. And we got to build a bigger engine. And that was the Maffetone principles first explained to me with great intensity and lasting effect by Mark Allen. So now here we are with this information readily accessible. I'm putting it right here into your lap. It is truly the secret to success in endurance sports, and what's, it's what the primal endurance approach is all about, greatly honoring and inspired by Dr. Maffetone. Yeah, so you got to take it with an open mind. I know we have our rigid and fixed beliefs in many areas of life, whether it be politics, religion, uh, the changing of the rules in soccer to allow more substitutes, whatever it is we can get dogmatic about. And I remember when Phil, uh, I, w- I was an MC at a public event. It was a gathering of triathletes, and uh, I was kind of introducing a panel of speakers, and Phil was one of them. And he's such a mellow and understated guy, as you'll pick up from the tone of his message in the podcast. And I remember it kind of going over the heads of these geeky triathletes who were looking for technical tips and, you know, salacious sound bites that they could remember. And Phil was saying stuff like, uh, you know, you got to slow down to go faster, which didn't make any sense to the crowd. Uh, he was saying that you got to eat more fat and that fat's actually good for you. And these carbs that we're living on and inhaling 
I mean, this is the day and age in the late 90s when people are sucking down energy gels during the seminar so that they can keep their energy going for an hour while sitting in a seat. I mean, not kidding. People were taking this stuff, dosing this all day long as they engage in these chronic exercise patterns and thinking nothing of munching power bars until piles of wrappers built up uh, in their trash basket in their cube uh, during a workday. And Phil had a quote like, I remember he said, hey, it's not the eggs that are killing us, it's the Wheaties. And it just went over so flat with the crowd, like they did not know what the guy was talking about. So I guess sometimes we have to wait 30 years and open our minds. But one of the morals of the story is be open to new ideas, new concepts, and especially appreciate this time-tested message from Phil Maffetone as we rebroadcast his first appearance on the Primal Blueprint podcast a few years ago. Thanks for listening. I'm so happy to, uh, to reconnect, man. It's been a long time. It has. I was, I was thinking about uh, how long it's been. And uh, it looks like your hair got longer and you look a lot younger in that photo. Wait a sec. Where's my camera here? Uh, there you go. There it is. My hair got long. No, my hair got shorter. It got a little grayer. <laughs> and the gray came uh, entirely from putting on a triathlon for 10 years. Oh, which yes, I thought that's... was going to be so easy because all my experience participating in 130 of them, I'm like, hey, why don't I be a race director? It seems like an easy way to make some money. I know everything about sure. it. And, you know, <laughs> the very first day of, you know, the first race, people are coming over asking me where to put stuff and where these cones go. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I've never done this. I have no idea how to put on a race. Yeah. yeah. Good, good. Well, yeah, um, race director, um, I've known a few of them, and I've I've seen what it does to to the human body and the brain. <laughs> and uh, you know, we were doing uh, music tours. Um, we did we did four years, five years, I guess, um, with one or two longer tours. Oh yeah. And it it got to the point where I just said, I, "I'm I quit." Uh, the, being <laughs> being a tour manager was the problem. Because of the way I did it, what I did was I I um I would send out an email to my members and say, I'm going on tour, and if you want to have an event in your town, let me know. Ah. And so we we would do some house concerts, but mostly it was in clubs and things or mm -hmm. uh, wherever. And a lot of the people who wanted to do it were not experienced at setting those things up. And so I'd get these emails every day, you know, well, what do I say to the, you know, the YMCA director? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, he, he wants to know what your lyrics are about, you know. Oh, boy. Get, get, a, get away. Go away. Far away. I don't want... <laughs> yeah, it's the same with the athletes. I mean, most of them are fantastic, yeah. but if you have 5% that are a pain in the butt and they're Well, that's thinking, what it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the noisy yeah. ones. Um, but yeah, it was like, you know, t 22 hours a day for a few days on race weekend. And, and then, you know, nine months of not, not much work at all, but it like, it still balances out to be super stressful. But such is, uh, such is the management, uh, end of things. That's right. So let's get into it, man. I know you've, well, uh, I've heard you on other story. podcasts saying that it, you know, it takes so much convincing and restraint and patience for the hard driving athlete to accept 
you know, yeah. and embrace this type of training. And it, it seems to yeah. be, even today, I mean, Phil, you've been talking about this stuff for over 20 years. And even today, there's so much resistance to, um, you know, I think the greatest legacy that you've given endurance sports is to tell people to slow the F down. Yeah, yeah. It, it's actually <laughs> been 35 years uh, or, or maybe a little more. I mean, it really, um, a lot of these things started to come come into place when I was studying exercise physiology before I, I got into practice, which was 1977. So by then, by 77, I, I had, you know, soon started seeing athletes and it was pretty evident that um, the, there were problems with the typical approaches to marathon training and te- mostly what I saw was runners in the beginning. So it was marathon training, it was um, 10K, 5K, you know, all endurance stuff and people were you know besides injuries the the other big complaint was that people were not happy with their performance they didn't feel they were racing up to par they they had ups and downs and then burnout you know which was to become the overtraining syndrome was uh the reason for many of those so yeah i guess the the inherent problem is maybe tying in a primal theme here that training for a 26.2 mile you know intense competition is is misaligned with um you know our genetic expectations for health in the first place sure whereas you know running Um, the running the quarter or something um and and doing a couple intense workouts every week and and jogging on the other days and stretching and, and lifting a few weights maybe maybe that's not so offensive on on the surface to the body as as that extreme endurance training Oh, definitely, and and that's what that's what Paleolithic people did. That's exactly the the kind of workouts they did. And most of the time, they were spending with those slow, easy walking and jogging kind of activities. Um, but they did sprint, and when they did, it was important. Um, the problem today is that people, for a, a variety of reasons, and that's something we can discuss. People, you know, young people. Uh, don't develop that aerobic system when they're younger. It's, it, they either develop nothing because they're inactive, especially today, um, or they got into a sport which involved, uh, you know, track and field, football, baseball. You know, where you're either standing around doing very little <laughs> or you're sprinting hard, and so that aerobic health um, has has uh, been what's what's lacking. And when people get into endurance as a game, and that's that's a good way to look at it, it's a Paleolithic game, um, they forget to develop that endurance component, that aerobic component, and it's like having a vitamin D deficiency. Um, people who have that can never be good athletes or great athletes. So, um, you know, I look at the aerobic component as kind of like a nutrient. You can have a deficiency, uh, you can have an excess too, but that usually doesn't happen. Well, it seems even more so in modern times when uh, the 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 typical person that's attracted to the endurance sports is a highly educated, hard driving professional in a, in a in a knowledge position, a knowledge worker who's sitting in an office looking at a screen, possibly commuting. Mm-hmm. And so, then out of our 168 total hours in a week, 
we're、um, thumping our chest so proud that we're training 10 to 15 hours per week, but then the other 100 and some is largely comprised of sitting around and none of that general overall health and movement and activity that、um, is, is, so, is so critical to not just health, but also translating to performance is what you're alluding to. Yeah, without a doubt. And the, the, I was doing corporate fitness programs before they called it corporate fitness, but the attitude even back then was that. You know, these, these men and women are under huge stresses、uh, every day, and they need to go to a squash court and smash that ball as hard as they, they could, or go in the, in the gym and, you know, sprint for as long as they could, or lift weights as much as they could, and, and kind of work out the stress. Well, that's just absurd. All they, all, all they were doing was adding the stress and、uh, the, the corporate.、Um, Health problems,、um, I think, worsened at that point more than ever. And they're finally getting away from it now. But that's, you know, it's part of the no pain, no gain social scene.、Uh, it shows up everywhere. <laughs> the no pain, no gain social scene. Yeah, it's kind of.、Um... We're, we're,、uh, we're, we're joking about it here, but it's, it's, a, it's a pretty disturbing problem because I think that、um, people. They don't get a sense of satisfaction until they've triggered that fight or flight response、uh, in their、mm-hmm. workout. Right. And, and, and it's a serious problem. Most of them don't realize that they're triggering that fight or flight reflex sitting at their desk,、uh, having a business meeting, dealing with、um, you know, a so called friend or、uh, a significant other. And you know, creating stress, they're just you know, they're not, they're not moving hard or fast, but they're still triggering that stress mechanism. And that's one of the things that contributes to trashing the aerobic system, right? So, after such a stressful day in the office, and they go out and do a six mile tempo run and and blow the um, blow the、mm-hmm. blow the gas out, but um, let's back up and 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 try to try to um, uh, take some steps to. Solve the, the problem or, or avoid the,、um, the momentum toward a, a high stress endurance existence. And if our listeners are interested in, in turning the corner and, and balancing stress and rest better and balancing fitness and health better, which has been your tagline for so many years,、um, what would be some initial steps they would take? Well, I think the first thing is a self analysis, a self assessment of health and fitness. Are you happy with your? Your body? Are you happy with your performance if you're a, a competitive athlete?、Um, is your body fat where you want it? Is your energy levels,、uh, are your energy levels high?、Um, do you get stressed out too much? Do you have injuries?、Um, are your, your best PR, PRs years ago? If, if these kinds of things、um, are, are You're answering yes to, then, then you need to make a change and it needs to be made today, right now, because what, what you're doing isn't working. I'm not opposed to、um, a lot of the, the workout approaches out there.、Um, I'm op- opposed to doing anything that's going to impair health or fitness, and often it's both. And if you don't recognize that, That's part of the problem. So, the first step is to recognize that things are not working quite right.、Uh, and of particular interest to many endurance athletes, 
And a particularly widespread problem is the excess body fat, where people are shaking their heads, wondering, I'm putting in that 15 hours a week of hard training, and I can't uh, get to that optimal body composition. What are, uh, what are the causes of yeah. that, basically? Wow. I, you know, I was shocked. Um, I was amazed when I went to uh, a race about, uh, I want to say, four years ago. I hadn't been to a, uh, an endurance race in, in quite a while because I had gotten into music, um, kind of went off the grid, and um, just hadn't been to a race since Mark Allen's last race, actually, which was uh, ninety five. And um, ninety five. Don't worry, yeah. no one's no one's gone better than him since then, <laughs> which is awesome. I know it's amazing. Um, but I was amazed uh, when I went to this race four years ago. Um, how many overfat athletes there were? Um, it was shocking. Uh, and you know, I've been to a number of races since and I've seen the same thing. So it wasn't just that one race. And, and I've, I've been hearing it from athletes, um, via my website, uh, how, you know, they, they've been in increasing their body fat and they don't understand why. Uh, and you know, it's really, uh, for most people, it's, it's really pretty simple. You do have your rare instances which are very rare where you have some um, unusual hormonal pattern or, um, uh, you know, a pituitary tumor or so- something. We'll just push those aside because they're, they're so rare. But for the most part, people um, are eating too much refined carbohydrate, number one. And number two, they're not developing their aerobic system, which is a very important system because that's where fat burning takes place. So, um, you know, probably 95% of the people who are over fat, uh, and, and athletic, if they just address the dietary component, don't eat any more junk food, easier said than done, but it's as simple as that. And number two, develop the aerobic system. If nothing else, it will speed up your fat burning and get rid of body fat, which by itself is going to help your performance. But, you know, all endurance events are sub-max events. Uh, a marathon is, is um, you know, these, these uh, the winners um, and virtually everyone else are racing at around 85% of VO2 max. Uh, in an Ironman race, they're about 70% of VO2 max. So we're not talking about all-out efforts here. This is a sub-max sport where we have to develop our submax system, which is where the aerobic system comes in, and, and doing intervals on the track every other day isn't the way to get faster for these endurance events. It's a way to fine-tune your anaerobic system, which will help you in that final kick maybe, um, but not at the expense of the aerobic system. And sure, eating... Or drinking some carbohydrates during an Ironman, for example, can be a very helpful thing. But that doesn't mean that having it for breakfast or having it as a snack or drinking this, you know, carbohydrate junk drink all day long, thinking you're going to get more energy, is not the answer either. That will backfire because it suppresses fat burning. And people have to understand that 
40 to 50% of the carbohydrates we eat turn to fat and, and immediately go into storage. So the more carbohydrate you eat, the more is going to go into storage. And if your output of fat burning is not good, you just build up your fat stores. Um, you talk in your, your books, uh, I guess the most recent one is the big book of endurance training and racing, fantastic book. So go hit that on Amazon or wherever you like to buy books. Um, but this, this theme has come, come through for, um, in, in numerous other books too, where you say that the metabolic effects of the workout actually last for a long time after the workout. So if you go on a sugar burning session where you exceed aerobic heart rates, you're essentially training your body to prefer glucose for fuel for many, many hours after. Sure. Uh, you know, 40, 48 hours after in the case of an anaerobic workout. Ooh. Um, but, but also, <laughs> so if I do my, if I do my intervals Tuesday, Thursday, and then a, a tempo run Saturday, I'm a hundred percent sugar by that calculation, you're, right? You, you could be in, in trouble. Um, <laughs> now again, there are points in a training cycle where if people build a really good aerobic base and then they want to fine-tune their their speed they've already built some aerobic speed now if they want to fine-tune their anaerobic speed they could do that um and they could do a tempo run on the weekend and and two track workouts during the week the problem is they just do that week after week month after month the problem is how long can you do that without having an adverse effect and i i use a guide of two to four weeks and very few people can do four weeks. So two to three weeks, uh, A, you get your maximum anaerobic speed benefits from two to three weeks of that. And B, um, you stop after that point and then you, you don't impair your aerobic system. So it's a great thing to do. And you can do that a couple of times a year, uh, if you want. Although, um, uh, you know, I've got plenty of case histories of people who have raced their best off just building a base, including you. Um, and uh, when you look at that and when you see those numbers and when you see people do that race after race, you wonder, why am I even doing track workouts? Why am I doing these, you know, hill repeats or uh, whatever, whatever anaerobic training is, is um, popular at the moment? Uh, and of course that's my question. Why are you doing these? Um, you're not going to, your body's not going to obtain the benefits you think you're going to be obtaining and you're going to be suppressing the very benefits that you're trying to get for the sport that you're in. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, um, you're, when you develop your aerobic system, you're, you're building a Ferrari engine. And if you are doing this blended training approach where you're trying to cover all the bases every single week with your tempo runs on this day in your long run or your long ride or whatever your sport is, but you're throwing all kinds of stuff at your body into a high stress pattern. You're basically um, just tweaking around with a a small engine like your neighbor down the street that's so annoying because he's got it sitting on the front lawn and constantly tinkering <laughs> with this piece of junk instead of building the yep. you know the Lamborghini to, to cruise down the street and turn everyone's head. Yeah, and and you 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 touched on that key word there, stress. Um, you know whether it's physical stress, which would be the training problems that people encounter when they do hard workout, or the lack of aerobic building is a stress. Chemical stresses, which would be a, a dietary 
stress, uh, too much caffeine, not enough real food, too much junk food, um, or mental emotional stress, which, which can include education. If we're not, if we're misinformed about human physiology, um, that's a big stress because then we're going to apply things to our training, um, that, that may not work very well. But mental, emotional stress, you know, the no pain, no gain, um, just just beat you over the head and you have this mental, emotional stress that's ongoing. So if the first step is the self-assessment and we didn't score it all that great, we made some marks over in the stress columns and the a lot of anaerobic workouts column, what's the next step um, now that we're trying to, uh, we, we've acknowledged there's an issue, there's an overstress and a poor performance and all the other markers you mentioned. What, what do we do to, to right the ship? Well, the first thing is to put your heart monitor on and uh, determine a what I call an MAF heart rate. And there's something called the 180 formula, which people can use. Um, I developed that and I, I compared it to uh, laboratory analysis, um, uh, clinical analysis, and it correlates very well for most people. So you could use that um, if you have a better uh, way of, of um, coming up with that. If you if you can go to an exercise physiology lab uh, or someone can come to you with the new technology now, um, you you may come up with a better number, but it's not going to be that much different. But you come up with a, a training heart rate that builds your aerobic system. Go out and, and go for a run or go for a ride at that heart rate. And if you're depressed because of how slow you're going, it just confirms that you really don't have a good aerobic base or you don't have any aerobic base. Um, if you're, uh, um, you know, if you typically go out and run at an eight minute pace and your training runs and you, do the 180 formula and you come up with a heart rate of say 140 and you go out for a run at 140 and you're 930 pace, well, that's going to make you depressed right away. <laughs> um, don't say that the system doesn't work. Say that your aerobic system doesn't work. Admit that and then agree to train at that level so that because that's your starting point. That's that's as much as your aerobic system can give you, 930 pace or whatever it whatever it is. So that's your starting point. And as you develop the system, you get faster and faster. And you conceivably could be um, in a short time down to an eight-minute pace, um, except now your heart rate is a lot lower. So instead of uh, 165 where you were training, to get an eight-minute pace, you're now training at that eight-minute pace at 140. That's pretty good efficiency. Uh, and then the other thing is to get rid of the junk food. You know, it's it's just say no to junk. It's, 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 you know, the problem is that sugar is addicting and people are addicted and getting off it is not easy. I've, I've been through it myself years ago. I know many, many people who have been tortured by sugar, um, but deciding you're going to get rid of it is is the the first big step there too and then that'll take the stress off your body so that fat burning can increase and your your aerobic system can develop um quite well uh, so when you say sugar is addictive you're you're talking uh in in literal terms from your your 
years of practice and from a medical perspective. I sure am. Um, I, I treated plenty of drug addicts, and I, I um, had a lot more people who were hooked on sugar. And um, for many years, you, you couldn't use the word addiction in the same sentence as sugar because uh, scientists and even clinicians said, well, we don't really know if it's addicting. Of course, they did that with tobacco in the beginning. Um, uh, but I think now they're showing that, that sugar and cocaine have similar actions on the brain, that dopamine system is affected. And um, certainly anybody who has tried to stop eating sugar uh, will feel the addictive nature of it quite quickly. And some of them, some of them uh, feel miserable for a couple of days, and then, then they're fine. Some of them uh, take a longer time to do that. Some of them need more support. But um, the bottom line is, is it is addicting. People have a hard time getting off it. Um, and, and without doing that, anything else you do with your diet, isn't, it's just not going to work. If you say, well, I'm going to, uh, and I hear this all the time, if you say, well, I'm going to be really good uh, Monday through Friday and then Saturday, of course, you go out and you celebrate, you know, um, and you junk out. Uh, sorry, that's, that's not going to work. That's like a heroin addict saying, I'm not going to do heroin Monday through Friday. I'll just do it on the weekends. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad if you... a holiday comes around, I'm, I'm going to do it on the holiday because you know, that's what celebration is all about. Come on, you know, we're, we're uh, mature adults. And, um, again, I know what it's like. Uh, you know, I, I, I was a sugar addict probably in day three of my life because as soon as I was born, they shoved a bottle of sugar water in my mouth. And that's what I lived on for, um, probably for a few months before they started giving me um, something equally addicting in the form of, uh, you know, Nestle's baby food cereal, cereal, which turns to sugar immediately. So, you know, that was my early life for, for 16 years or so. And it, it wasn't easy. And so I sympathize with everybody who has to go through this process. It, 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 it's not easy, but it's really one of the most important things you can do for not just your aerobic system and, and reducing body fat, but for your overall health and longevity and, and your fitness and your performance. Well, it also occurs to me that if you're in this chronic training pattern that, uh, that Mark talks about so much on the blog and in, in the Primal Blueprint, um, you're going to you're going to really support that addiction to sugar because you're training your body to prefer glucose. So uh, part and parcel to sure. making dietary changes and making that commitment is to recalibrate your life and moderate stress because stress is a trigger for uh, sugar craving. It is. Um, the, the stress factor, uh, is, it, you know, it's, it's high on the list. You, you have to uh, assess your stresses. Um, and I often have people write down their physical, chemical, and mental stresses, make a list of each, take a few days to do that, and then circle the biggest physical stress, whether it's wearing bad shoes, sitting too much, you've got dental problems that you're ignoring, 
uh, your training is bad, your bike is not set up right, whatever. Uh, circle the biggest stress that seems most obvious to you. The, the, the chemical stress is the same thing. Uh, your diet, um, are you drinking too much caffeine? Do you drink too little water or too much water? Um, are you not getting your nutrients uh, because you're not eating a lot of vegetables? You know, circle the biggest stress there, which is often sugar. Uh, and then the mental, emotional stresses. Make a list, circle the biggest one. And those three that you circled, most people can work on three at one time. And you either get rid of stresses, okay? If your job is killing you, why in the world would you want to stay with it? Sure, you get benefits and retirement. Come on. Do we want to live a happy life or do we want to suffer until we're at some retirement age um, and and then we're not capable of doing a whole lot when we do retire? Um, you know, if you're if you're in a relationship that isn't work, it's either working well or it's not working. Um, make the change. Um, so I think um, I think getting rid of the stresses will do a, a lot to you know, just emphasize to your body that you want to burn even more fat. Getting rid of the getting rid of the sugar and training aerobically will help immensely, but getting rid of the stress is is that other key factor that people sometimes forget about. Yeah, when I was racing, my biggest stresses were the guys that kept finishing in front of me in the race. That was, they really bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get rid of those guys, just shake them during the bike, bike ride, look back and they're still there. Okay, so I like that idea of circling your biggest ones and, and you know, taking on just what you can manage. But if you identify some of the the easy ones to knock off, like, hey, maybe cut, cutting back on the caffeine or, um, you know, you also brought up a good point about um, this concept of having cheat days, which bugs me so much because if you're on an eating pattern yeah. that you require even the mentality of forming the thought of having a cheat day, then you're on the wrong diet. Yeah, I, I, I'm asked that a lot. Yeah. Uh, people ask me, you know, if I'm out lecturing – um, and sometimes I get emails, and and if I respond to the email at, with, I don't cheat, I don't eat anything bad, I'll always get a, an email back. You mean you don't eat anything bad? You mean if you're out? You mean if it's your birthday? No, I don't celebrate my birthday. I celebrate every day. I don't wait for some event to to celebrate it. Every day is a is a wonderful event and one to be celebrated. Um, I don't cheat, and I hear I hear these. Um, I hear these things from other other people who are promoting healthy lifestyle, and I'm surprised at how often I I see that they say, "Well, yeah, well, I have to I have to cheat once in a while because then my body's going to be used to it, and if if I don't cheat and I have to cheat later, it's good." Come on, um, yeah. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. Yeah, modify your you know get rid of some stresses. And then the stresses you're left with, which you may not be able to control, when you get healthier, when you have a healthy aerobic system, our body is meant to deal with stress. So we have this pituitary, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which, which helps counter a lot of the stresses. So we're, you know, don't, don't play this game of, well, I can't get rid of my stress, so what am I going to do? I, I, just, I just gave the recommendation, which is to eliminate the ones you can eliminate. 
And boy, you could take that really far. And then your body will cope with the ones that you can eliminate quite well. So that's that's the formula with with stress control. Nice. Um, I, you mentioned briefly the the real going for the gold here, the the aerobic um, standards. And so I want to get back in, back into that in detail, and then perhaps after that, just hit you with a few rapid fire questions about some hot topics that you have a really interesting and novel take on. So that'll be a fun way to, to finish it off. But I think for the listeners, you know, the, the biggest gift that you've given to, to the endurance sports world is to emphasize the development of your, of your aerobic system and how it's, you know, the, the, by far the most return on investment is to fine tune that aerobic system, build a bigger engine rather than keep throwing junk against the wall and hoping that it'll stick and you won't get sick, injured or burnt out with all these different assorted types of workouts. So, um, you mentioned briefly your 180 minus age formula. And what this does is identify, um, what you call the maximum aerobic heart rate. So can you explain that a little further? Sure. Early on, I, I, you know, in the seventies, I, I realized that um, there there has to be a, a a training level level of intensity, um, which which we could measure with the heart rate that would allow the the aerobic system to get the most benefits from every workout. And I actually in, in the in the very beginning tried. Uh, Things like the 220 formula. I thought, well, this has been around for a while. Let's, uh, let's use this. And I, I compared, um, as, a, as a yardstick, I compared uh, physical findings. In, when, when an athlete came into my clinic, I could evaluate them. I could do a blood test or a urine test or um, a muscle test. I would look at posture, do basic neurological tests and so forth. I would then have athletes go to the track and I would, I would observe them on the track and observing the gait and correlating that with heart rate was a very interesting thing because what I found was that the heart rate um, would change based on physical stress and gait was a good way to, to analyze that. Um, and basically what I saw was that as the heart rate increased, as they got faster, the heart rate would increase, and at some point, the gait would begin to deviate in an abnormal way too much. So I would I would bring the uh, the 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 speed down, the heart rate would come down, and the gait would even out. And I thought that's a that's a pretty nice point. And so that was sort of the basis of um, assessing an athlete and giving them a training heart rate. And in those days, this was before the polar heart monitor, the wireless monitors first came out. Uh, I used a, a, um, a cardiac heart rate that was used in hospitals and, uh, it was big and bulky and it was, it was, uh, a, a bit obnoxious cause you had to look down your shirt to see the, the heart rate. Um, <laughs> and on the, on the track, it was, you know, I, I got a reputation. I'll say that, um, women would have to, you know, look down their shirt and, um, all these onlookers would eventually <laughs> say, oh, yeah, that, that's one of Maffetone's runners. Um, and so 
I was lecturing somewhere, um, I think in New York City, and someone asked me, I was explaining this process that I was going through, you know, how do you individualize your training for, for athletes? And I went through this process and I said, then I give them this training heart rate and they develop their aerobic system with it. And as they train, they get actually faster at the same heart rate, which is an indication that the aerobic system is building. And somebody asked me, uh, how can we find that heart rate ourselves? And I didn't have an answer. And I was, I was annoyed with myself that I didn't have an answer. And I went back to, I, from that point on, I started thinking about, well, there's a 220 formula. And I know that wasn't based on anything. Somebody just came up with it. I thought, well, if they can come up with a 220 formula, even though it doesn't work. <laughs> so you're talking I, about the predicted. To... Um, you're, you're talking about the predicted maximum heart rate. We've always heard is 220 minus your age, and you're saying that didn't come right. from anywhere. That was just sort of a random. Well, that was that part of the formula was almost random. <laughs> um, if you if you do the if you do 220 minus your age and and actually do an accurate max heart rate test on a treadmill. Um, which is not easy to do, um, about a third of the people will come up with 180 or 220 minus their age. They'll, they'll hit that. And the other two-thirds, a third will be above and a third will be below. So that's not very accurate. The rest of the 220 formula is um, you train at 65% of that, 70%, 75%, 80%, 85 Well, which one is it? Right. You know, is it 70%? Is it 80%? And, of course, most people pick a higher number because... <laughs> you go faster, yeah. Yes, you go faster. <laughs> um, and so that was, the, that was the, the, the random component of the, of the formula, uh, beside the fact that 220 minus the age usually isn't your max heart rate. But I just thought, I, I need to find a formula because um, this guy's question was, was a valid one. And I want to, I want to give people some guidance in, in this regard because I, I, you know, they all can't come to see me. And, and by that point, I was starting to get pretty busy and I didn't want them to come and see me. <laughs> so I... Um, I started playing around with um, basically with math, uh, taking numbers and experimenting, and and then taking athletes that I had already determined uh, a max aerobic heart rate, and they were they were training successfully with it, so they were getting faster. Than, so therefore, I knew that that number for them was good, and I just plugged in the numbers and eventually to make a long story short, came up with the 180 formula. And um, it's, it's been used since uh, 81 or 82, I think. Probably by 82, I had the final, final version, which is what, what we still promote today. And um, uh, lots of, you know, I get these, I get these spreadsheets um, that people email me in with their MAF tests over the, months and it's great to see it's it's a it's amazing to see uh some of the changes that that people are getting so what does this magic number represent what is the dis, the the physiological definition of maximum aerobic heart rate 
It, it appears to be the rate that you can develop your aerobic system without the stress of getting the anaerobic system involved. And if you measure things like respiratory quotient, where you're on a treadmill, you're having your oxygen uptake measured and your carbon dioxide output, you divide oxygen into carbon dioxide, you end up with a, with a, uh, with a number, the RQ, and the RQ will give you an idea of what percent fat and what percent sugar you're burning at that heart rate. And you can indeed, um, as is usually done, uh, look at those numbers from the low heart rate all the way up to the high heart rates. And at that max aerobic heart rate that is based on the 180 formula, what you'll find is your your fat burning is pretty high at that point. And as you start to creep over that, the the amount of fat burning starts to diminish quickly and the amount of sugar burning, glucose burning, starts to increase significantly. So the RQ, so you away from um, RQ, respiratory quotient, is identifying what percentage of fat and glucose you're burning at a given intensity, right? Correct. And so can you pinpoint that? Like, do you like to say that 0.7 RQ is correlating with maximum aerobic or is it different between individuals or what? No, it's different from, from one individual to the next. Uh, the range of RQ goes from 0.7 to 1.0, 0. 0.7 being uh, max, uh, being 100% fat and 1.0 being 100% sugar. Both of those extremes, uh, no one ever ventures into, at least in a healthy situation. Um, so most people are in between that. Uh, 0.85 is where you're 50-50 sugar and fat burning. But what I have found is that uh, athletes who develop the aerobic system really well get to the point where they're at their max aerobic heart rate. Their fat burning is, is going to be higher. They may be 65% fat and, and the rest sugar or 68% or 62%. You know, they're going to be higher than the 50-50 uh, uh, point. Um, and that's a great place to be. And that, that corresponds to the MAF test. So if you, if you, you know, if you're training at your, your 180 determined heart rate, your max aerobic heart rate, um, and you're, you're going at a nine minute pace, um, as the weeks and months go by, you should get faster and faster. That improvement corresponds to burning more fat and that will correspond to the rq numbers if if you have those tests available uh, most people don't um it's a it's a great test if you can find someone who uses the correct protocol but uh you, you know use a heart monitor and and measure your your pace from month to month and that'll give you the same information right that's what's so great about the the math test protocols it's so practical and easy to perform and so <clears throat> excuse me uh what happens is you will identify this maximum aerobic heart rate 180 minus your age and you actually uh give some subjective adjustment factors in your book for certain people that uh, if you've struggled a lot, you subtract five from that value, or if you've been really successful in experience, you can add five, right? Uh, 
Right, and those are those are very important because it, it's often the reason people don't progress because they cheat on the 180 formula. They say 180, okay, 180 minus my age, okay, I'm going to add five because I was a good runner in in high school 20 years ago. Or I'm at a oh Phil, you know, are you are you, uh, because... are you calling me out right now or something, <laughs> man? Because <laughs> I remember getting my I mean I took many many years off from heart rate training. I was keeping in shape and doing this and that, but I I decided in training for speed golf that I I needed to get back into this whole thing. And I finally got a heart rate monitor on. And when I was when I was a professional over 20 years ago, 155 was that magic number that you know we used as a maximum aerobic heart rate. And then I'm sitting out and, and realizing that, wait a second, I'm 20 years older and now I got to <laughs> dial it way back. And it's, yeah. it was a rude awakening yeah. all over again. Um, but yeah. Yeah. so it's, it it's, is. And people do that. It's a, it's, it's like the sugar rationale, you know, you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm strong like bull. I could eat sugar. It's not going to hurt me. You know, come on. Uh, let's, be honest with our health and we'll make better progress. So people, you know, for example, if you're on any medication and note the word any, any medication, uh, you subtract 10 from the 180 minus your age and people complain, well, uh, you know, you're on medication because you're not as healthy as you should be, period. Um, if you can get yourself healthy, and get off the medication, then you can readjust your your heart rate. But um, do that first, and then make the adjustment. So you you have these these factors that you you have to look at and be honest with. Come up with the 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 max aerobic heart rate, and when in doubt, be conservative. Because if you're conservative and you come up with a slightly lower number, you're not going to do any harm. You you'll you'll progress almost at the same rate. You'll be a, a touch off in the course of a year, but it, it'll it'll be, you know, not greatly significant. But if you're a couple of beats over, in in people who tend to be very stressed, and they're a couple of beats over, that's a a big big problem. They're not going to progress because that's that's uh, that's just adding more stress to the to the fire. Yeah, I, I don't know if we can emphasize these things enough. And it's so common that people will fudge it or report back and say, yeah, most of my run, I kept it under um, my math heart rate, except for except for on the hills and um, on that time when my, my, my buddy pushed the pace. But it's, it's an absolute and a, and a very important um, thing to be very strict about because of the metabolic effects of the workout. And you detail this great in your book that if you if you mess around just a little bit, what happens to the intended benefit of the workout to develop the fat burning system is you kick into glucose. Yeah, and you know what what has happened um, over the years is that the heart monitors now, um, you know, you could you could um, upload your data, uh, you can click your watch or whatever whatever device you have and somewhere along the way you could you could come up with uh, you'll you'll see a number that says your average heart rate for this workout um we're not talking about average heart rate we're talking about not exceeding your max aerobic heart rate your maf heart rate um you don't exceed it period um if you look at your average and your average is under that maf heart rate that that's 
not telling you anything because you could you could have gone way over it on the uphill and way down on the downhill and uh, talk and to the uh, talk to the problem. mailman for four minutes and and counted yeah. that into your yeah. average yeah well, I remember when i when I first got those cardiac heart monitors, I would go out and run um and it actually took a it took a a couple of runs to because of the biofeedback effect, it took a couple of runs to be able to be steady at that MAF heart rate. And, um, but once I, once I got there, it was easy to maintain it. And after a a week or two, I could run a hilly course and maintain it. Um, but you know, I would always run this trail and it would kind of pass a few houses and there would always be these two Dobermans (laughs) that, you know, were not tied up. They were not fenced in. And before it was no problem outrunning them, especially having been a sprinter um, in high school and college. And as long as I, as long as I started sprinting soon enough, as soon as I saw them, I, you know, I would I would zip by them. Well, I couldn't do that with the heart monitor, and it was. <laughs> but what I noticed was as I approached the house, and as my brain realized that, you know, there's two Dobermans here and they're usually outside. My heart rate started increasing just thinking about it. So it was kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, the, the discipline of, of training, the discipline of sports, um, the instincts and intuitions, all this stuff is built into using the heart monitor as a biofeedback device. We have, we have lost our instincts and intuitions and um, this this biofeedback method will help you get that back, and um, not playing games and tricking yourself um, uh, is a is a very important aspect of it. Uh, so we should um, describe the the test. It's very simple. You just strap on the heart rate monitor. And we've talked about the simple example of running, but you can do this in whatever your chosen sport is. If it's cycling, you you, uh, you establish a, uh, a fixed course that you repeat. So if you're a runner, you go to the track and you run eight laps, if that's going to be your testing distance. And you time yourself while maintaining that as close as possible to your identified heart rate of 180 minus your age or whatever it is. And then you, right. you and time it, the result. Yeah, and, and and you don't have to be on the track. I like the track because a it's an it's a a flat environment. It's the same environment every time you go there. Um, I recommend people go the same time of day, the same day of the week, um, the same day of the month. Uh, if the weather's extreme, don't do it. Wear the same shoes. Use the same bike. Of course, now there's power meters, and you could use a power meter as well. But um, I. I have a lot of data on mile MAF tests, so I, you know, I could, I can, if somebody says, "Well, I'm, you know, I, I started at a, at a nine minute pace uh, in my MAF test, um, my mile uh, track time, uh, MAF test time," and um, you know, that was a few months ago, and now I'm at uh, at seven thirty pace. Uh, I can relate to that because I've 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 seen thousands of runners. Uh, and correlated all their all their um, one mile times, but you can do a point to point on the road if it's about a mile or 
about two miles. It really doesn't matter if it's a little bit hilly. As long as you can keep your heart rate right where you need to, then that's your test course. And do that once a month. Don't do it once a week. Don't do it once a day. Uh, that's called obsession. Um, <laughs> do it. Do it about once a month. And um, is it perfectly accurate? Uh, no, we're dealing with a human being, and um, you know, if you had a, a hectic week at work, your MAF test may be a few seconds slower. But over the course of months, if you follow the the basics, you know, same time of day, uh, same time of week. If you're if you're if you if the weather's bad, don't do it. If you had a horrendous week at work with stress, don't do it. Um, over the course of months, you, you you will trend in a very accurate way, and uh, the bottom line is is if by the second and third month you're not seeing some improvement, then something is interfering with your body because you know as human beings we should naturally improve. We're supposed to get better as endurance athletes. That's what's built into our genes. And so if we don't, then something is blocking the process. And that blocking could be like the things we talked about, eating junk food, um, training too hard, too much stress. Those are the three big ones. Yeah, probably most commonly what I've seen over time of working with athletes is um, uh, exceeding that heart rate in training. Yeah, too often. you know, it, it, it yeah, it, it may mean that you can't train uh, with your your training partners. It may mean that that Sunday run that you always do and is a big social event, it isn't going to work unless they're willing to run at your pace. And unless they're on this program, they may not be. Um, those types of workouts tend to be the worst for people because it becomes a competition. It's not a training run. It's a race. And the egos and the, you know, that whole social scene um, is going to interfere with what you're trying to do. So be be careful. Uh, and you mentioned this briefly a while back uh, that you're going to go out and and set your uh, set your heart rate limit and, and feel depressed because your pace is so slow. But we have to make the distinction that you can still be a really fit competitive athlete, an anaerobically fit athlete like Mark Allen and Mike Pig, who you, the stories are detailed and they're so incredible how they, you know, are world number one leading triathletes and they adopt this type of training and they go out there and they're, they're running a comically slow pace. You said Mark Allen started out at eight something pace at his maximum aerobic heart rate. I think he was, I think he was 820 on the track. <laughs> and then when he did his first, that's the level of the aerobic system. That's really how you have to look at it and, and, you know, what's going to happen. Well, in Mark's case, um, in a few years, he was running at a 520 pace or whatever, 515. Or, um, and right, that yeah. was because of his discipline. Mark, Mark you know, ha- had a lot of attributes, one of which was he was disciplined. And that didn't mean, you know, grunting it out every workout. That meant doing what needed to be done to build endurance. Um, and so the important thing to uh, relate, relating to competitive success, that at the time that Mark Allen started this and was running eight-minute pace at math, he could run in a, in a triathlon 10K off the bike. He could run 520 per mile or something and, and be the number one guy in the world. But as he diligently worked toward improving that 
that aerobic function and getting down to be running 520s at aerobic heart rates, then he could go out on the race course and run five minute or sub five minute on the 10K, which is, you know, it's a a marginal improvement because he's world number one already. But for the average competitor who's, who's not competing at that high intensity pace anyway, we're talking about taking an hour, 90 minutes off an Ironman time simply by slowing down average mm-hmm. pace and workouts. Sure. I, I'm, I've seen people take an hour or 90 minutes off their marathon times. Um, so without a doubt, the, the results will come uh, as long as you're honest and as long as you measure and make sure things are working. And if they're not working, find out why. You might have to find a clinician to help you, but most people can figure it out for themselves. Um, and um, let your aerobic system build. Hey, Phil, this has been a wonderful conversation. And what I think I want to do is set you up for a return visit where we can hit some really fun Q&A with some, maybe get some individualized questions that relate to a lot of people and and how to clarify this and and really fine-tune their approach as they embrace something that's, you know, the the greatest revolution in endurance sports is learning how to do it in a healthy manner and also be able to go fast and have more fun. So, Dr. Phil Mathetone... On the Primal Endurance Podcast, we really appreciate you joining us, and we'll we'll get you back on soon. Thanks, Brad. Really appreciate it. All right. Da-da-da. We wrap. We're not sisters, not even brothers. Seems everyone persists to hate the other Must be the human Ain't all that wise Cause none of us are satisfied We are not sisters Ain't even brothers But all insist we're
So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too perfect. It's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my god! So she likes like the mayo on. A oh yeah, she so she loves those. Sort of, we love them as well. We have uh, we we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo. We eat the balsamic. We eat the the ranch. Um, the avocado oil we use all the time, and, and so you know that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish, Balance, Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. <laughs> and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> That's my pleasure.